Hi, I'm Channing. And I'm Elise. And this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand that scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain really compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. Hi friends, welcome to the podcast. In this week's episode, we'll be exploring John chapters 7 through 10 for the dates April 24th through the 30th. In these chapters, people are really trying to figure out what to think about Jesus. Some people really love him, others really hate him, and a few are still unsure about what to think. There are concerns about his refusal to follow the law of Moses perfectly, which he broke when he healed a man at the Pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, which we covered that story in a prior episode. Also in the text, there are advocates that say, who cares when he performs the miracles? The point is that he performs miracles. It's at this point when we begin to see Jewish leadership feel increasingly threatened by Jesus and his messages and begin to attempt to catch, corner, and even kill him because of this. We read about two of these instances in this week's chapters, first with the story of the woman caught in adultery and second with the man born and second with the story of the man born blind, who was later healed by Jesus. In both these stories, these events were either put in motion or used by Jewish leaders to challenge Jesus. In this week's episode, we will cover these stories and explore themes of power, patriarchy, and direct experience along the way. And also, I'm sick today, so we're recording the podcast no matter what. So if my voice doesn't sound like it usually does, it's because you can send me well wishes as much as you'd like. (laughs) That's right. But for those of you who watch Friends, wait, do you watch Friends? No, I have not ever seen a single episode of Friends. There's an episode where Phoebe gets sick and it's like she kind of has this like sultry, sexy voice that she (laughs) like uses for all of her songs. And then when she gets better, she is like really sad that she no longer has the... Oh, it's no. like sonorous voice, so maybe that will be your experience. <laughs> this is my new podcast voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so let's take a look at the story of the woman who was taken in adultery or who was caught in adultery that shows up in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And a brief summary, this is a story about a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus by a group of religious leaders, all men. They asked Jesus, the men, if they should stone her as this was the punishment for adultery under Jewish law. Jesus responded by writing in the sand and then saying to the accusers, let any of, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, the accusers left until only Jesus and the woman were together. Jesus then told the woman that he did not condemn her, but told her to go and sin no more. And this is a story that's often cited as an example of Jesus's compassion and mercy towards sinners, as well as his teaching of forgiveness and love. 
Now, there's a lot going on in this story, and reading it with a feminist lens helps us see things we might have otherwise missed and read Jesus and this woman's interaction as a loving and liberating one. In Michael O'Sullivan's article titled, Reading John 7, 53 through 8, verse 11, as a narrative against male violence against women. Hint, hint, this is an academic article. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Reading this story with a feminist lens helps us see that the person who stands accused is a woman, and Jesus and the accusers are all men. With a feminist lens, we also see that the woman is unnamed and is only identified by the charge brought against her which reduces her to, quote, an unacceptable sexual object and is treated like a passive object for debate, a public spectacle, and as bait to try and trap Jesus, end quote. She is also on her own, without an advocate, among men with authority, and that authority can literally kill women. I think a few things I want to put point out from this story, like first, the patriarchal and religious power structures structures in place give the men accusers of the story both the confidence and the right to snatch up this woman, throw her in the middle of the temple, and accuse her to the point of demanding the legal punishment by of death by stoning. And aside from the horrific trauma experienced by this woman, I think another terrifying element of this story is that these men probably think that they're like carrying out their God-given religious duty, even if that means the literal death of a woman. Thus, for these men, they don't even have to be conscious of how they uphold patriarchal and religious power. They don't even have to outwardly abuse or hate women in order to participate in the violent system. In fact, many of them would probably say that they love their wives and their daughters and their sisters. And that's the shocking and terrifying power of the system. It encourages people to abide by the violent structures in order to be seen as fulfilling your duty and like fulfilling your duty to the state and fulfilling your duties and responsibilities to God. Thus, in their violence, these men are seen by the public, by the public and by their own selves as upholding their responsibilities. This scene is also so terrifying, I just keep using that word, but I should use a synonym like horrific, because it's so reminiscent of bishop meetings and disciplinary councils in the Mormon church held against women and queer folks. The church is a patriarchal institution that also values surveillance, which means that members and neighbors are encouraged and praised for reporting perceived wrongdoings and sins of other people in the congregation to their leaders. And from here, It is neither unlikely nor uncommon that based on the gossip or accusations of others, one would then receive a phone call from your bishop asking you to come in for a meeting, which plays out quite similarly to part of the story that we're looking at today. Accusers think that they are fulfilling their duty and continuing to, um, and continue to uphold the patriarchal system where you then have to stand trial against an all-male jury. And unfortunately, many bishops and stake presidents do not choose Jesus' response, where they silence the accusers and flip the story on its head. Instead, they often choose metaphorical death by stoning, which means punishment over solidarity. Yeah. And even still, although the woman seems to be the center of this story, she she is merely a nameless object used by the accusing men in an attempt to trap or trick Jesus. The accusing men want to have some charge to bring against Jesus. We learn in John chapter 8, verse 6, quote, This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him, end quote. 
Some scholars think the Roman government had removed the power of capital punishment from the Galilean governing legal body. Thus, if Jesus had advocated for stoning, he would put himself at odds with the Roman officials. But on the other hand, if he advocates that she not be stoned, he would appear to deny the law of Moses and thereby put himself in a bad spot with the Jewish officials. In this way, the story is shaped like a tragedy where the woman is both the pawn and the punished, the bait and the battered, in the careening chaos of male-dominated patriarchal and religious authority systems. And maybe that's why Jesus' response in all of this is way more unexpected and and destabilizing to the power structures at hand. When he takes a quiet moment and writes something in the sand, only he and the woman might see, and then he responds, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone, he is refusing to play his adversary's game. He's refusing to participate in a system of violence and punishment. He refuses to sanction a violent death for the woman and goes further by saving her from such death. One by one, the men realize their hypocrisy and depart from the scene until Jesus is left alone with the woman and says, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she says, No man, Lord, which is her first and only line in this whole story. To which Jesus then responds, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And so in this story, Jesus ushers in a new order of saving love as opposed to punishment. Yeah, in fact, of this interaction, O'Sullivan writes, quote, All this time, the woman has been living the traumatic violence of being consigned to silence as her life hung in the balance, whilst her male accusers battled verbally with the male Jesus. Jesus now speaks to the woman as a person and in a kind way which reflects the developmental cognitive and and affective effect that her experience may have had on him in his humanity and spirituality. His action empowers her to be heard into speech for the first time in the story. By speaking, listening to, and hearing her, he treated her with the dignity, care, and empowerment that corresponded to her as a human person, end quote. Well, okay. One of the things I'm thinking right now that's like not in the episode is that this interpretation that we're offering, I think it risks being, well, like, yes, Jesus has a huge role to play in this. And Jesus is very loving and tender and compassionate and forgiving to this woman. But like, don't be fooled. Jesus wouldn't, like, it's only in relation to this woman that Jesus has the opportunity to like, be compassionate and merciful. And I don't think that we should be fooled that like the woman wasn't trying to stand up for herself this entire time. And just the fact that like, although Jesus is saving her from death or punishment, there would be no need of saving had this system and these accusers not thrust her out of whatever situation she was in in the first place. So I I just hope that we don't get that confused or we, we are still able to see that throughout the interpretation. Yeah, and also like kind of writing on that point too is I have heard that there is some debate on how this woman ended up getting caught in the first place. Like somehow the story presented as this woman being able to commit adultery all on her own. But who in their normal life just happens to happen upon Mm -hmm. somebody in the act of committing adultery just by pure happen chance? Like – I'm not saying because it's never happened to me, it's never happened to anybody, but it doesn't happen that often. (laughs) Right. And so for the idea that like a bunch of these like religious dudes somehow happened upon a woman 
having sex with a man or having sex at all, period, um, is like not plausible, I think. And so there's some speculation about whether this woman also experienced another kind of betrayal from her lover or from her partner as well, because how else would these religious leaders have even known that the act was happening if Mm -hmm. not some insider information about what was occurring. And then we also have to ask questions like, why is the woman appearing alone? And where is her lover? Where is her partner? And so I think pulling back some of the layers and really looking at the fact that she wouldn't be in the situation if it wasn't for layers and layers and layers of harmful dominating patriarchy that show up here in this story. Right. Yeah, I think that's so perfectly said. And so then with all of this, like, what are we supposed to make of the line where Jesus says, go and sin no more? Because at first it sounds like Jesus believed that the woman had act- had acted sinfully. And I realize that this reading may feel really loving and merciful for some, especially because Jesus does not shame or blame her. Further, even if he did accept that she had committed adultery, it seems that the issue of how to interpret that event is actually a non-issue for Jesus. So said differently, maybe Jesus recognizes that a woman's sex life is not his business. And for me, yeah, snaps on the backside. (laughs) For me, sometimes I read the line, go and sin no more, as kind of a standard goodbye from Jesus, like a general all-encompassing reminder to try and do things a bit better tomorrow which he also implied to the group of accusing men. And he said to many other people in the New Testament who were sick or disabled. And so I think with those examples, I think the word sin seems to be acting in a far more ambiguous way. And so I think there's two paths that we could read. Like, yes, maybe this woman was committing adultery or maybe she was set up as a pawn the whole time. And it's really not about her committing any type of sin at all. Yeah. And finally, in an imaginative way, we might ask ourselves, what was not written down in the story? What more words were shared by Jesus and the woman? Did he ask if she was safe and if she had somewhere to stay that night? Did she cry and tell him how difficult and unfair it is to live in a world that encourages violence against women, both in private and public spheres? Did she yell out in frustration about the double standards, crying, they just left him there. Why did he get off scot-free? And perhaps Jesus introduced this woman to his friends, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, because he knew they would welcome her into an understanding community of women who know what it's like to be accused of adultery, promiscuity, and experience varying degrees of violence. Whatever the case, we think this story is a harrowing example and warning of patriarchal religious violence and the lengths men will go to to protect their power and position, even if it means taking the life of a woman. Yet, at the same time, this story also showcases the dismantling power of mercy, love, and solidarity with the woman, and all those who are accused and brought to trial, suffering beneath a violent system. I'm glad that we got to spend a good portion of the episode focused on this one scenario, but in these three chapters, there are a lot of other conversations and interactions going on, and the people are like very concerned about who Jesus is and what he's doing and if he's the real Christ. Like in these chapters, we read about many people trying to kind of like suss out who Jesus was. Is he a magician or like a performer? Is he the literal son of God, a prophet, a teacher? A nobody who has like fooled people into believing him and spreading rumors for him? 
And what struck us the most was that in the midst of these questions was a lot of scriptures and people using scriptures to argue one way or another. But we've noticed that there were yet others who used their like bodily senses and experiences to gather information for themselves about what type of person Jesus was, instead of only relying on scriptural accounts. And one place in the text that we feel is a great place to start exploring this is in John chapter 7. I think this chapter is really fascinating to read because we really get to see and like feel the tension of the drama unfold. In this chapter, we kind of first start with like a temperature gauge of what the like common beliefs are around Jesus. In verse 12, we learn that, quote, there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Some said he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people, end quote. We find Jesus in this chapter teaching in the Jewish temple. He's doing his normal Jesus thing, talking about God and also talking about the people. He begins to critique the way that people follow the law of Moses. In verse 9, in verses 19 through 23, he says, quote, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Who go ye about to kill me? End quote. And those are like really confronting words, and I love Jesus for them. So if we remember, these people are really, really upset about the fact that Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Jesus speaks directly to this, saying, quote, Moses gave unto you the law of circumcision, which is, you know, if you don't know what circumcision is, it's the cutting and removing of the foreskin on the penis. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision and the law of Moses isn't broken, are you really that angry at me because I have made a man whole on the Sabbath day, end quote. Or in other words, under the law of Moses, it's okay to cut and mutilate a man on the Sabbath day, but somehow it's not okay to restore a man on the Sabbath day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what Jesus is doing here because he's appealing to the senses of the people. He places sacred cutting and sacred healing opposite one another and asks the people to use their own sense of what feels whole, healthy, and life-giving to double-check their own standards. And we're not always really keen on using the Joseph Smith translation for the New Testament all the time, but here we can really appreciate the distinction made for verse 24. According to the Joseph Smith translation, Jesus says, quote, "...judge not according to your traditions, but judge righteous judgment." And we also love that the good news translation of this verse, which says something similar, judge not according to external standards, but judge by true standards. Yeah, but that's a tricky question, right? Like, what are true standards? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we even see people trying to work that out in the text, right? For a lot of people, um, true standards, especially in this story, are what is written in the Bible. We hear some people say against Jesus in verses 26 and 27. They say, Jesus speaketh boldly, and the rulers say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is. But the text says, when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. So basically saying, because we know about Jesus and we know who Jesus is, this can't possibly be Christ. Then there are other people who look at that same exact text and also say, Quote, hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was, end quote. So they're also using the text to say, well, look, here's what it says about the Christ and Jesus fits that description. So maybe that's possibly true. 
And after this whole exchange, we learn in verse 43 that, quote, there was a division among the people regarding Jesus. But we also learn not all of the people were divided. If we read ahead a couple of chapters to the end of chapter 10, we learn that, quote, many resorted unto Jesus and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there, end quote. And so one of the questions that we're asking is, who were these people? Who were these people who, in Jesus' words, did not judge him by their traditions, but with true judgment? I think we get a hint at who they are when we hear them speak in chapter 7, when after hearing Jesus teach, we hear them say, quote, of a truth, this is the prophet, and others said, this is the Christ, end quote. So how did they know? How did they know when many other scriptorians and scholars argued back and forth to no end on the matter? And we think maybe it was because these people relied on a different source of information and knowledge. We believe those who relied on their senses were able to recognize Jesus for who he was. And we're not even talking about senses as logical, like thinking common sense. We're talking about the visceral embodied act of the five senses, the seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, smelling senses. And this is certainly a change of pace for many of us who are steeped in a culture that values logic and knowledge, measurement, empirical data, all of those things to define the world and explain the human experience. There is a huge focus on knowing the truth of things by way of numbers, dictionaries, formulas, equations, and facts. In this same culture, the information gathered by senses are often less valued. The human experience of the world is one that cannot always be measured and defined. What measurement do we have for the enchantment of birdsong? Have you ever had the experience of knowing something without knowing how you knew it? Can you explain it in any other way? What definition do we have of the way that spring breeze kisses our forehead on a sunlit morning? There is a way of being in the world that does not rely on measurement, data collection, and definition. Yeah, and this is called phenomenology. Phenomenology is the study of direct experience, or in podcast terms, it is the study of a type of information gathered from lived experience. Direct experience, or what we also call a sensuous experience, is one that embraces the human senses as real and valid forms of information, even though they are difficult or impossible to measure. The Gospel, according to Channing, says that the scripture mastery verse in 2 Nephi that says, quote, the learned think they are wise, applies to a phenomenal <clears throat> phenomenological experience of the world. When one relies too heavily on empirical data and knowledge, there is a temptation to ignore or shadow over the wisdom and knowledge gained from a sensuous experience. We see this play out in John chapter 7, where those who rely on the text heavily have difficulty defining Jesus, but those who are able to engage their senses, their hearing, seeing, feeling, tasting, smelling senses, are able to see Jesus for who he is. They are the ones who say, this is a prophet, this is Christ. And this also reminds me of other parts in the New Testament where Jesus will say to the people, like, well, the, the scriptures say one thing, but whom say, ye do, whom say ye that I am? Like, yes, sure, yes. you can rely on the text and the facts to like prove something, or you could allow your experience to teach you something more meaningful and truthful about who I am. Yes. Oh, I love that. Right? Because we also know that the body receives information from the world and from the other people in it 
constantly. Like our bodies are in constant communication with our environment. And if we learn to deny that this type of communication and information gathering even exists, or if we learn to deny its value, then we can become hindered in our ability to understand and relate to others and sometimes see what's right in front of our faces. Many of us must relearn to engage our senses after living in both a society and a religion that devalues the body and bodily sensations. In the word of In the world of phenomenology, it's precisely our passions, our natural man, that provides us with the type of faith that Alma describes as one that is a hope in things that are not seen, not seen by minds that are accustomed to understanding fully and beyond a doubt, which are true. And I think about this because I think faith doesn't always have to be something that we constantly try at and work at. Faith is also a natural state of being. Faith and imagination is how our brains work in the world. For example, I like to imagine that Elise and I are sitting across the table from each other because it hasn't happened in a long time, so I'm just going (laughs) to pretend like it's happened recently. And if I'm sitting across from her, I can see her face. I can see her eyes behind her glasses. I can see her hair and her shirt and her arms. But what I can't see is her legs or her feet or the back of her head. But I know that they are there, and I can sense them even when I can't see them. This is because my brain creates a picture in my mind based on what it thinks it knows about the shape of Elise. I have a type of faith that Elise is all there when she's at the table with me, even if I can only see the front half of her body. If someone were to ask me how I knew her legs were there or that her head was more than just the eyes and the lips and the nose that I see, I honestly wouldn't be able to say anything other than, I just know that she's all there. This is the type of faith that is born out of a direct, lived experience with our senses in the world. It is a type of just knowing. We just know. And so as we engage with the chapters in John this week, we might ask ourselves things like, what do I just know is true? What information do my senses offer me that can provide me with valuable knowledge about my place in the world, in my relationships, and in my spirituality? Are there spaces where I feel I need like a definitive proof or answer to believe something? Does this happen in my spiritual practice? Where do I feel I need to justify my sensate experience with empirical facts? What might it be like to trust the information my senses give me? Are we able to identify the truth of someone from the way they speak? What might it be like to listen to, say, a conference or a sacrament talk with all of our bodily senses intact? What is it like to listen to a podcast, maybe even our podcast, with your whole full body? What is it like for you as a sensing and fully relational being to be in sacred places, whatever that means or doesn't mean to you? How difficult is it for you to trust yourself and trust what you see, hear, feel, and know? And if you, like us, find it to be difficult at times to do these things, it's okay. It seems that Jesus offers a remedy for this too. In John chapter 9, Jesus restores sight to a man who was born blind by mixing his own spit with dirt to form a clay that he placed over the man's eyes. It seems that the act of engaging with the mundane the profanity of spit and mud, that miracles are produced. Jesus' mixing of body and earth is a restorative act. It seems that if if we are to see, if we are to sense, we must be willing to do the same. We too must engage with the earth, 
we too must mix our bodies up into and with it. We too must layer ourselves with the undeniably earthly state of our being if we are able to judge with true judgment. I just don't know how else to explain it. I just know it. There may be those that call this approach blasphemy or sacrilege, and I suppose, in a way, that's probably true. We are promoting the mixing of the sacred with the mundane, but it doesn't make it wrong either. Spirituality and truth can be both. Jesus can be both Christ and a type of sinner. I mean, he broke the rules after all. But does it really matter? Not to those who sense him for who he is. In the words of the man born blind in John chapter 9, verse 25, we learn, quote, Whether Jesus be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we're grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you showed your support by sharing the podcast, leaving us a loving rating on iTunes, or connect with us on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We're deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so, so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends! Bye, friends!